But uh, I'd like to start the sermon today just by reading the passage that we're going to go through, because there's some interesting stuff that happens here in these 16 verses. We're in the book of Luke. It's Luke chapter 4. We've been working through the book of Luke since the beginning of the Advent season back in December, and we're going to keep doing that up until Easter. We're, We're tracking along somewhat with some of the passages that our youth Bible quizzers are studying as they prepare for Bible quizzing, which starts next week. We're not right in sync with them, but they're learning what the text says. We're going to be talking here through these sermon times about what does the text say and what does it mean. So today we're in Luke chapter 4, starting in verse 14. The context right before this, the first 13 verses of Luke 4, is when Jesus, right after his baptism... He's about 30 years old, and he's just kind of starting his public ministry. Right after his baptism, he was out in the wilderness for 40 days, and and he fasted, and Satan came and tempted him, and Jesus stood up against that temptation. And so this is what happened next, starting in verse 14, and I'm just going to read down through verse 30. Follow along with me, either on the screen or in your Bibles. We are, um, for the book of Luke, we're reading through the English Standard Version. ESV. Normally we go through the NIV just because that's kind of comfortable for us. We're doing the ESV because that's what the quizzing is about and the kids who are kind of memorizing these passages, I don't want to mess them up with slightly different words. So here's Luke 4, starting in verse 14 in the ESV. It says, Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor." And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is this not Joseph's son? And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, truly, I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel at the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them were cleansed, but only Naaman, the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. They rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. Quite a story, isn't it? What did you notice there? What did you notice in this story, this account given by Luke? What did you hear? What do you hear in the Bible in this last bit? Just give, give me what you got. What do you notice? Come on, church. I don't want to do this by myself. What do you hear? We're reading the Bible together, right? What's in there? Criticism, filled with wrath. What else? Rejection. What else? 
Violence. Yeah. So far, that's four pretty tough negative things. What else is in there? What do you hear? Truth. Truth? Yep. Fulfillment of prophecy. Yep. Yeah, a lot of stuff in these passages, right? It's always interesting for me just to hear what hits you, what, what impresses you. Did you notice? Did you notice that 12 out of the 15 verses here, not including the little chunk of quotations from Isaiah, but 12 of the 15 verses of Luke giving his account begin with the word and. Do you see that? You're about almost every verse, and. And then this happened, and then this. See, Luke, all through this book of Luke, and we see it in Luke chapter 1 at the very beginning, Luke says that he is writing an orderly account. And Luke is sponsored probably by a guy named Theophilus. The scripture in Luke chapter 1 says, most excellent Theophilus. Because Theophilus wanted a record of what actually happened, and Luke did a lot of studying, interviewed a lot of people, and talked to a lot of folks, and wrote down a record in Greek for the Greek readers to understand what actually happened with this Jesus. The Gospel of Luke, it's not a creative story, it's a written account of what happened. Jesus did this, and then this, and then this, and then this. Now we're not hitting every single verse in Luke over these next few months. We're skimming through and surveying a selection of the passages. Now, if you wanna go out to our connection table, you can pick up one of these Bible in a year outlines totally free. We're not charging anything for them. And um, you'll read every single verse in Luke, um, especially as we get closer to uh, the, the, the winter and then into the spring or uh, the, the summer and into the fall seasons are gone. With our Bible plan in a year, you can read all of them, but I'm not going to preach on all of them. We're going to we're going to hit most of them. And I want to let you know before I get too deep into any of the rest of this today, there's a really fun book. It's by Ken Bailey. It's called Jesus Through Middle Eastern Eyes. Ken Bailey is a fella, um, spent a lot of time in Pittsburgh. Um, that was kind of his hometown area, but he also spent over the years a lot of time in Israel and in the Middle East, and he became an expert on the cultures there. And so um, Ken Bailey, his book is really helpful to understand how the people from Jesus' time and Jesus' place would have understood what Jesus did. So I just wanted to note for you, Jesus through Middle Eastern eyes, that's a fun one. You can pick it up wherever you buy books. But I'm fascinated. I'm fascinated by what I think a couple of you picked up in this whole account from Luke about how the synagogue responded to Jesus. Here's a local man, grew up in the town, sits down to read with his people, announces the good news that he's the Messiah, reads scripture. People are amazed at this, and then they're offended by this, and then they tried to kill him. Now, spoiler alert as, we, alert, as we saw in Luke 4.29, it says these people, now again, this is his hometown, this is a synagogue. These are not just like some random rabble who were out in the streets that Jesus accidentally picked the wrong guys to preach to. This is the synagogue, right? These are the religious folk who should have been able to understand what Jesus was talking about. But it's one more reminder that religious folk are not always tied into the truth if all they're thinking about is religion instead of God. But that's been other sermons, and we're not going to go too far down that road today. But these people rose up. It says they drove him out of town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so they could throw him off the cliff. That's what they did with blasphemers, with people who equated themselves to God. Throw them off the cliff, and if they don't die from falling, then throw stones on them until they die. That's stoning. That's what God told the Jews to do to people who were blasphemers. And this is what they were prepared to do to Jesus. But it's fascinating because did you hear how the story started? Jesus sat and he read and people wondered about it and they glorified in him and they were excited. 
Why the 180? What happened in these few moments that went from Jesus' hometown kid, look at him, he's quite a man, to Jesus, we want to throw him off the cliff, and if that doesn't kill him, we'll take care of him the rest of the way. What happened there? I mean, let's be honest. We've all heard of people getting frustrated with preachers, right? I've been yelled at in the lobby after sermons because people didn't like what I said. I've gotten mean emails because people didn't appreciate it, but I don't know. I've never been afraid of getting thrown off the cliff or pushed out in front of a bus. Maybe I'm not pushing the right buttons. I don't know. We know churches that have fired pastors, but man, throwing the guest preacher off a cliff, that is some next level anger. That is some serious frustration. What's the deal here? Well, that's the story. Let's dig in. What does Luke tell us? It says, Jesus returned from being tempted. This is verse 14 again of Luke chapter 4. Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out through all the whole surrounding country. Galilee was an area. It was a region. It wasn't just one town. There were lots of little towns in Galilee. And Jesus, it says, taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And that wasn't so unusual. If there was somebody who had some knowledge of the scripture and had a calling upon them and who people respected, they would walk into the synagogues. And, and Jesus, here at this moment, at the very beginning, he was being glorified and received by all. It's the kind of thing that happens when you have a young man who grows up in your church. And maybe he hits that late teens, early 20s and says, you know, I'm, I really want to dig in and think about maybe pastoral work or missionary work. And, and, and they study a little bit and, and you invite them to preach and everybody, even if it's not a very good sermon, everybody says, oh, isn't this wonderful? Look, that's our, that's our guy. And then the neighboring church next door, they have him. And then somebody invites him to go to a youth retreat and they have him. And, and it's just, it's exciting because God's moving. You've experienced this, some of you. This is what's happening here with Jesus at the beginning. He taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. Glorified means just, just praise and excited. Good, would you come over for lunch after the service is over? It says in verse 16, he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. Now, there would have been... Perhaps other scrolls, but this one was given to him. Did he set that up? Did he say ahead of time, hey, I want, the, I want scroll number three from Isaiah? I don't know, but it was given to him. And he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. And we know this today as Isaiah chapter 61. Anthony read a portion of this for devotions. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, again, most of this is from Isaiah 61, though Jesus didn't read it word for word. If you were in the temple or if you were in the synagogue and you were reading from Scripture, you didn't have to read every single word. You were kind of giving the gist of it to the people who were there, reading most of it, but not always all of it. And that's interesting because... What we see here is not exactly Isaiah 61. It's very close. Jesus said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. Well, that's exactly what it says in Isaiah 61, verse 1. And then Jesus says, because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. Well, that's exactly what it says in Isaiah 61, verse 1. And then... Jesus says, he has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. 
Well, that's close to Isaiah 61, but if you have Isaiah 61 open in your device or in your Bible, and if you're flipping back and forth to Luke chapter 4, you'll see that it's not exactly the same because what Jesus says is he sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind. What Isaiah 61 simply says is to proclaim liberty to the captive and recovery of sight to the blind, but Jesus goes on to say, and set at liberty those who are oppressed, and Isaiah 61 says nothing like that. It's not there. Jesus inserts this line. He's quoting from Isaiah 61. The people in the crowd in the synagogue would have known Isaiah 61. This is one of their passages. And Jesus says this, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. And then he goes on and wraps up with, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, which is what Isaiah 61 verse 2 says. So Jesus gives this quotation of Luke 61. I'm going somewhere here. Hang with me, folks. Jesus gives this quotation and gives it in the spirit of what's said, and he doesn't do anything inaccurate. He simply doesn't say it exactly as it was, and he adds one little line. But it's interesting where Jesus stopped, because this was the end of his quotation. Jesus never got to the good stuff. If you were a Jewish person sitting in a synagogue in Nazareth 2,000 years ago, Anthony did. As he read the rest of Isaiah 61, starting in verse 2, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Yep, that's what Jesus read. But here's what Jesus didn't say. Jesus didn't go on and continue to quote that he's here to proclaim the day of vengeance of our God and to comfort all who mourn, to grant those who mourn in Zion, that is, Jewish folks, to give them a beautiful headrest instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planning of the Lord, that he may be glorified. Those are all good things, but Jesus didn't preach about that. Furthermore, what Jesus didn't read to them was Isaiah chapter 61, verse 4, that talks about this. And think about what this would feel like if you were a Jewish person in this town of Nazareth, the kind of town where people say nothing good ever comes from there. The kind of town that is kind of on the edge and there's always people trying to take over. The kind of town where the people are told they're nobodies and they feel like nobodies. Jesus did not read for them Isaiah 61 verse 4 that says that God will build up the ancient ruins and the people there will raise up the former devastations. Thou shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. Strangers it says in Isaiah 61, strangers shall stand and tend your flocks. Foreigners shall be your plowmen and vine dressers, but you shall be called priests of the Lord. They shall speak of you as the ministers of God. You shall eat the wealth of the nations and in their glory you shall boast. Instead of your shame, there shall be a double portion. Instead of dishonor, they shall rejoice in their lot. Therefore, in their land, they shall possess a double portion. They shall have everlasting joy. Jesus only read part of Isaiah 61. And for that audience, as I said, he didn't get to the good stuff. What does that mean? Who cares? Why does it matter today? Well, it's interesting it's interesting that Jesus didn't highlight this piece for them about you're going to rebuild all the torn down stuff and you're going to have magnificent places to live. He didn't tell them that, although that'd be nice to hear. It says in Isaiah 61, 5, that strangers shall stand and tend your flocks, foreigners shall be your plowmen and vine dressers, but you shall be called the priests of the Lord. What that means is that people from other countries and people from other places are going to come in and they're going to do the work for you. They're going to do the farm work. They're, they're going to be the plowmen and they're going to be the vine dressers. They're going to take care of all that. They're going to tend your flocks and they're going to do the hard stuff so that you have time to sit back and be priests for the Lord, to do all the church stuff that 
In that time, physically, it was a little easier, a little more comfortable, and you don't have to work so hard for all your stuff. Jesus didn't go back and tell him that, even though Isaiah was very clear that one day this will be the truth. Jesus didn't tell the people what it says in Isaiah 61.6, that you shall eat the wealth of the nations, and in their glory you shall boast. And that you, instead of your shame in Isaiah 61.7, you shall get a double portion. Instead of dishonor, they will rejoice in their lot. Therefore, in their land, they shall possess a double portion. There's all this stuff of blessings, material blessings. You're not going to have to work so hard. You can be priests and just spend your, all your time thinking about God. The people are going to do the hard stuff, and you're going to get a double portion. You're going to get rich. You're going to get wealthy, and people are going to honor you. Jesus didn't read that. He didn't go there. And, and on top of that, as he's reading from the scroll of Isaiah, he inserted this line to set at liberty those who are oppressed. That doesn't come from Isaiah 61. That comes from Isaiah 58, 6. Follow along with me. Church, stay here. We've got this. We're bouncing around. And, and I know these prophecies from Isaiah, five, six, seven, eight hundred years before Jesus, it's complex. But look at what Jesus is saying. In this passage that Jesus knows that they know, he throws in this line to set at liberty those who are oppressed so that these people would think of Isaiah 58, 6. And this is what Isaiah 58 says. In that time, God was speaking through the prophet Isaiah to people who were putting on a show with their religion. And this is what it says in Isaiah 58, 6 as God speaks to his people. He says, is not this the fast that I chose? In other words, you're fasting. You're saying it's for me. You're not eating food, and you're telling everybody that it's for God. God says the fast that I chose is to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free. That's what Jesus talks about, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to break every yoke. And then, in the book of Isaiah, in this reference that Jesus gave, he didn't read it all, but the people would have been kind of thinking through it as they sat there. Kind of like when somebody reads you one line of a song and you can't stop humming it for the rest of the day. Today, it's every light in the house is on. I don't know, this morning, Mel and I were leaving, every light in the house is on. Front porch looks like runway lights. Kind of like, man, it gets stuck, right? For these people, it would have been Isaiah 58, 6. And, and, and what's fun is that after Isaiah 58, 6, here is the command to the Israelis and to the Jewish people. It says in Isaiah 58, 7, that what real fasting is about is to share your bread with the hungry. Bring the homeless poor into your house. When you see the naked, cover them. Don't hide yourself from your own flesh. And shall your light break forth like the dawn, and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call. The Lord will answer. You shall cry, and he he will say, here I am. And if you take away the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger and the speaking wickedness, if you pour yourself out for the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then shall your light rise and the darkness and your gloom will be as the noonday. Jesus, the local boy in a tiny village of nobodies, doesn't just tell them you're going to be amazing. God is going to save you and people are going to come and do all the work and we can just spend all our time praising God instead of out there in the fields. Now, these people looking forward to a Messiah who will come and do something for them are told that what the Messiah really wants from them is to be offering themselves, not serving themselves. Jesus says, what I want is for all of the oppression in your land to go away. I don't want you to just oppress other people instead of them oppressing you. He says, I want freedom for everybody. Let there be liberty for those who are oppressed. But these people have been thinking, finally, one day we will be lifted up, we'll be raised up. Jesus said, there is a blessing for you, and there is salvation for you, but not just for you. This is for everybody in the land. And after he got done reading from Isaiah, 
and teasing them with these little passages. It says in Luke 4.20 that he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. Mic drop, right? And he began to say to them, so he read it, and now here's his interpretation. He said to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And at that point still, verse 22, all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, is this not Joseph's son? Now that's an interesting line that can be read a couple of different ways, right? That, that, that's true with the way we read it in English. That's true. There have been scholars that are looking back at Luke's Greek and they're saying this could go either way. It, it could be one of those things like, isn't, isn't this Joseph's son? We've seen him grow up around here. I mean, he's, he's a, a guy just like us, but look what God's doing. Isn't this amazing? Have any of you ever celebrated with somebody like that? Look, look, one of our boys, one of our girls, aren't they just doing great? But it could also be read to say, isn't this Joseph's son? Who does he think he is? Because I know people that I've thought of that way too. And Jesus said to them, doubtless you'll quote to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. In other words, if you're such a big deal, help yourself. And here's what Jesus also thinks that they're saying. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he says, truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. And these people who thought that maybe now this prophet, this savior, this possible Messiah who's rising up, who's one of their boys, maybe they're going to be something now because one of theirs is doing well. They'll be mentioned in the highlight reel. And Jesus says, no, this is one of the reasons why sometimes hometowns don't like their heroes. Because he says, I've got a message for everybody. And at this point, I wonder if the attitude's starting to turn. People are starting to squirm a little bit in their seats. Okay, he read Isaiah 61, and it was good. What was that thing with Isaiah 50? I don't know, but, you know, isn't this our boy? We love him. We, we talk well about him. But then some, isn't this Joseph's son? Yeah, that's Joseph's son. Yeah, but isn't that just Joseph's son? And Jesus, instead of backing off, instead of letting everything settle down, instead of just maybe making a couple calls through the week and trying to patch things up next week, Jesus takes another step forward and lifts up the faith of two Gentiles as examples for these Jews, which is about as offensive as it gets if you're a Jewish person, to say, here's how you follow God, and then point to people who are widely ridiculed as not following God at all. It's kind of like, it, like me telling, um, I've used this example before, but it sticks in my head and I just love it. It's kind of like telling, telling a farmer how to farm all of his fields, his hundreds of acres, because I've got six chickens in my backyard, and you know what really works? Do you like it when you hear that stuff? This is what these Jews are hearing when they hear this. Jesus said to them in Luke 4, 25, in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah. Jesus is going back 800 years here to stories that they knew. There were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up three years and six months and a great famine came over all the land and Elijah was sent to none of them but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha and none of them were cleansed but only Naaman of Syria. The details, in case your Old Testament is fuzzy, in 1 Kings chapter 17, it talks about Elijah, a prophet from God who denounced King Ahab. Ahab, bad guy worshiped Baal, a false god. 900 years before Jesus spoke, give or take a few decades. And Elijah, because Ahab was so bad, Elijah, through the power of God, pronounces that there will be a drought for some years. Jesus tells us it was three and a half years. There'll be a drought, and what comes along with the drought? 
a famine comes along with a drought. And so that's when Elijah pronounces to Ahab that there's going to be a drought. And then because he knows that the king hates him, Elijah goes and hides in the wilderness. The ravens feed him. He drinks from the brook. Some of you remember that story from Sunday school. A famine set in, and after some time, Elijah fled the area to a town called Zarephath in Sidon. Sidon was in a territory of people who worshipped Baal, basically devil worshippers. Elijah, as he was trying to escape from Ahab and all the people who were starving but angry, Elijah found a widow there. She was not a God follower. She was in the land of those who worshipped Baal. But there was a widow, and it had gotten so bad that she was actually collecting sticks to make a fire to bake some bread, the last loaf of bread that she had for her and her dying son. Elijah, the prophet, comes to her and says, give me your bread, which is ridiculous. Okay, strong man, get out of here. Me and my boy, just leave us to die in peace. But she does it. She, she can see that there is something about this guy. And go back to 1 Kings, read the story. It's fantastic. But she gives him this bread. This woman who's not a follower of God to that point believes in God's messenger, gives him the bread, and then she is given a jar of oil that never runs dry, and she's able to take care of her and her son until this whole famine thing passes. She is the example of faith given by Jesus to these Nazarene nobodies who are hoping that finally the rising tide will lift all the boats. And Jesus' messiahship will help them to be able to sit back and watch other people do the hard work. And then, as we saw in Luke 4, Jesus mentioned Naaman the Syrian. Syrian because he comes from Syria, which means he is not an Israelite. This is in 2 Kings 5. Naaman was the commander-in-chief of the Syrian army. He was a friend of the king of Damascus. He is a big deal. And at this time, which is just a generation after the Elijah story, this one deals with Elisha. Elijah, Elisha, if you're new, I know, it's confusing. But here's Naaman. He got leprosy, skin disease, horrible, terrible. Nobody in his land could help him, but he heard through a way that only God could orchestrate that there was a prophet in Israel who might be able to cure him. So he went and he searched out this guy, Elisha. Naaman, again, was a powerful man, a dignitary. He expected when he showed up, even if he was sick, that there would be a hospitality tent and there would be a whole feast and all kinds of stuff. But instead, Naaman was told by a servant to go dip himself in the Jordan River. Have any of you seen the Jordan River? Have any of you been to Israel and seen it there? I've heard people talk about how it's not as impressive as it kind of sounds. In fact, there are parts of the Jordan River that are very narrow and small. Is this, am I right? I see a couple of you nodding. It, it's, it, it, does it look like a river? I've heard it looks more like a, a creek. <laughs> And so here's here's Naaman. And, 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 And what we don't know, what you and I don't often realize, Naaman, who is familiar with Damascus, Damascus has some of the best water in the Middle East because they're at the edge of the mountains and the snow melts and comes down. And Damascus is one of these cities that's just known to have fantastic water, great rivers. It's one of those things. Naaman, the commander in chief, from there with a real river, comes here, a servant comes out. Instead of getting a feast, he's told, go dip yourself in the creek and you'll be healed. Naaman is offended. He's not gonna jump in this muddy little river. But one of his servants says, look, if he told you to do something hard, you'd do that. It's worth a try. You've traveled all this way. You've still got leprosy. What did Naaman do? Naaman believed, and he dipped himself, and he was healed. And Jesus lifts up this guy from Syria and this widow from Zarephath. And he says to the people in his town, that's the kind of faith you need to have. Now, something turned there, because do we see what it says in Luke 4, 28? Back to our main story now. 
as Luke is recording what Jesus said after these examples, it says, when they, that is the people in the synagogue, these Jewish folks, these, these hometowners that Jesus knew, who watched him grow up, they knew his family. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with, what's the word, church? Wrath. That's, like, that's even more than anger. That's more than frustration. This is mad. How mad is it? Well, they rose up and drove him out of town, brought him to the brow, <laughs> the brow of the hill. I can't even read it. It's ridiculous. They brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so they could throw him down the cliff. That is angry. Why are they offended? Well, they think now that Jesus is blaspheming. That, that could be a part of it. Their, their religion has been offended. But can you think about all the personal offense that these people who are so hopeful, who are so waiting to finally be somebody's, and, and maybe they can see that Isaiah, which Jesus, this guy who, there's a report all through Galilee about him. We, we, hear, that, we hear that he's power. We, we heard what happened at his baptism. God spoke, and maybe now something's finally going to happen that's going to be good for us. And Jesus says to him, have faith like a foreigner and serve the people who are hungry and clothe the people who are naked and give your houses, which you were hoping would be rebuilt into mansions, give your houses to those who don't have any. This is what it looks like to serve God well. That, I think, is what makes these people mad because Jesus was not what they expected. Jesus was not what they wanted and he wasn't serving them the way they wanted him to serve them. They made a decision on what they wanted from Jesus, and when he told them what was true, they decided to stick with their expectations instead of his reality. And you and I are put to that same decision every day. Are we going to follow Jesus for who he is? Are we going to accept the gift? Now, now listen, Jesus brings real salvation, right? Jesus brings real healing. Jesus brings us real hope. But how many times is it what you want it to be? How many times does Jesus surprise you? And how many times have you been ticked off for a while because it's just not happening the way you think it should? That's these people, and this is us. Jesus says that he's here to help these people and challenge them to serve. Do you know anybody who's frustrated because Jesus doesn't seem to be coming through for them or for their group in the way that they'd like him to? Do you know anybody like that? Do you hear anyone talking about Jesus connecting with their particular nation or country or people or their movement? And do you see their response when you challenge them, challenge their idea, or ask a question? Is it any different than what we see from these Nazarenes? Surrounding Jesus in the synagogue. How many people do you know who have some kind of agenda or assumption or ideal wrapped up and tangled in with their Christian faith? That's called syncretism, folks. Syncretism, this idea that we can take other cultural ideas, worldly ideas, other religious ideas and marry it with our Christianity and, and say that this is what's true. I mean, this is what these Nazarenes were doing. But Jesus, you Isaiah said that we'd be rich and we'd be proud and we'd be full and we'd be able to take time to just sit and be with God. Jesus says, that's going to come one day, but for now I'm calling you to serve. I'm calling you to give. I'm calling you to love and I'm calling you to trust me. And they said, no, to the point that they're ready to throw him off a cliff because they're not hearing it. 
This weekend, our nation remembers Martin Luther King Jr. There's a, there's a worship service tonight at the Oxford Presbyterian Church. Might be worth going to. I'll be there. But this weekend, our nation remembers Martin Luther King Jr., who preached that God loves and desires to save people of all skin colors. Now, Martin Luther King Jr. was not perfect, nor are all of the people who say that they follow him. But the message that came out so many times as he preached and as he spoke was that God doesn't give preference based on skin color, and all of us should say amen. Because God desires that people from all backgrounds, all nationalities, people from all kinds of ethnicities come to him and accept the free gift of salvation just the way that so many of us have. And this weekend, we remember, as we remember those words of inspiration, we also remember some of the terrible history of racism that's happened in our world, in our country, even in our community throughout the course of history. We can understand what it is for our expectations not to be met because so many of us get wrapped up in just thinking that this salvation thing is about us. It is for us. God loves us. Jesus loves us, wants to save us. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. But while it's for us, it's not just for us, right? This message is for the world. God so loved the world that the offer is there for everybody. Jesus, when he sat down with these people, as he's reading from Isaiah 61, and as he's referencing other verses in Isaiah, he says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. But that doesn't mean that all the poor get a wheelbarrow full of money. It means that he gives the poor hope for real life, even when they don't have anything. Do you know this? Have you been there? Some of you feel poor right now. Is God just bringing you out of that poverty or is he helping you get through it? That's the gospel. Jesus says, you're not alone. I'm with you and I give you hope. And some of us still don't feel like we have two nickels to rub together. Jesus said to these people in Luke 4, 18, he has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives. But that doesn't mean that all the jails went away. It doesn't mean that unjust authorities have disappeared. I mean, just three years after this event happened in Nazareth, Jesus hung on a cross put there by the Roman Empire who was persecuting Christians. Jesus says, I want to give liberty to the captives. But what did he show us? There is still captivity even right now for your bodies but what have I set free? Your soul can rise. Jesus says, I've come for recovery of sight to the blind. He did perform miracles, but not for everybody. And you and I know this too. How many of you have prayed for something to get better? I am tired of this thing hurting. I am tired of this thing. I, I, I'm tired of not being able to see. That doesn't all go away, does it? Jesus' version of sight is not always what we wish it were. But how many of you has Jesus given a vision and a hope for real life, even though you can't see the book that's in front of you? Jesus says, I'm here to give recovery of sight to the blind. But what's the good news? Even as our eyes fail, we can see the truth of who God is and how good he is and what is really real because Jesus can work in such a way when we submit our lives to him. Jesus said, I've come to set at liberty those who are oppressed. Those in that Nazarene synagogue were oppressed by layer upon layer of societal and governmental structure. Other Jews thought that they were losers. Romans took over their land and they were still there when Jesus died. All manner of governor layers were put in place by the Romans. You've got tetrarchs and governors and you've got rulers and you've got mayors. All manner of governors put in place. Jesus didn't overthrow all those authorities, even though he will. 
And even though he said that he was going to set at liberty those who were oppressed, what did Jesus do for the believer? He gave them power to be able to spread the gospel around the world using the Roman roads, even though that evil empire still existed. Jesus says, my gospel is that I will be with you and I will bring you through it. But we so often, like these Nazarenes, want Jesus to just lift us out of it. Let me just float away in a magical Lamborghini filled with my favorite food and never another day of stress. Isn't this what we want? And then we say, God, you're not being good to me. I have to go to work again tomorrow. Jesus says, I have been sent to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus said that he came to show and provide and make available the full extent of God's love. Peter, one of the closest followers of Jesus, Peter, who was beginning to be in the crowd around this time. Peter wrote in 1 Peter 1, in God's great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And into, listen to this church, God has given us new birth into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power. Why do you need a shield? Because there's stuff coming at you. Peter says, you are shielded through faith by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In all this, we greatly rejoice, though for now a little while you may have had to suffer grief and all kinds of trouble. Peter understood what Jesus was talking about. Peter killed for his faith, understood what it was to be a worldly captive. He understood what it was for his body not to work the way it did when he was a strong, young fisherman. Peter understood what it meant for people to look down upon him. And yet Peter says, look, we've all, because of our faith and because of the love of the Lord, we've got an inheritance kept in heaven for us. We are shielded for now as we walk through the fire by God's power. And though for a little while we may have to suffer grief and all kinds of trials, we can greatly rejoice. And Jesus says, that's what I'm bringing. How many people, though, want that kind of gospel? Most of us don't. We want the fluff. What kind of gospel do you want? What are you going to do with this, Jesus? He's not here today for you to walk off the cliff, but you can ignore him. You, you, can, you can push him aside, and you can do whatever you want for the rest of your life. That's your choice, folks. But let me tell you that what Jesus said is true, and this inheritance in heaven for us is real. And let me testify to you that even here in this life, where we have to suffer grief and all kinds of trials for a little while, even here, Jesus gives us life and life to the full. Because full life isn't about being comfortable. It's not about being easy. It's not about having a great reputation and everybody saying that you're amazing. It's about resting in the truth that Jesus is who he said he was, that he loves us, that he's provided for us, and he will set at liberty those who are oppressed. Will you pray with me? Oh, God, forgive me for wanting so much the things that just seem nice. Oh, Lord, you have blessed us. 
Even those of us in this room who feel like we're poor, oh, Lord, you've blessed us. Those of us who wish we had more, Lord, you've blessed us. We're eating. We're living. Sometimes we even get hot when it's cold outside. God, you have blessed us so richly, and yet so many of us still hunger for more of this stuff. God, forgive us. Help us to remember that that is not life. It might be a blessing, and it might be fun, but that's not where life is, and it's not a promise. So, Lord, help us to remember that now, and please forgive us if we've gotten our attitudes out of whack. Lord, today, Jesus, today, we hear your promises to set us free even in our captivity, to give us sight even if we feel like we can't see. Jesus, we understand that we understand that you're proclaiming the year of the Lord's favor. Help us. Help us to remember that inheritance that is waiting for us. Help us to remember the strength that you are giving to us, the shield that you are providing for us, even as we walk through these hard times. Lord Jesus, help us to remember this. Oh, because Lord, we forget. We think it's up to us. We think we've got to make it, earn it. Lord, help us to receive your gift of salvation. Help us to receive your promise of spiritual protection. And help us to remember the inheritance that we have because we are your brothers and sisters and we are sons and daughters of the king. Give us strength in these difficult days to press on and to fulfill our little corner of the gospel that you promised where, where people who don't have clothes can, can be given clothes. People who don't have food can be given food. People who don't have homes can be given homes. Lord, help us to be your servants, to serve in that way, the way that Isaiah talked about, the way that you hinted at in this section of the gospel and the way that you were so explicit about for the rest of your ministry. Lord, help us. Help us to believe with our minds and with our hearts and with our hands and with our stuff. Lord, help us. We need you and we love you. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.